to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, and this week and next we'll be looking at verses 37 to 50, which will close off a major section in Luke's gospel. 951 begins the journey towards Jerusalem and is a major section in Luke. So we're concluding really the, this one segment of the ministry of Jesus. So we will, after that, take some little break uh, from Luke for Christmas and some of the New Year's uh, things as well to set our minds for the new year. So this week and next week, we'll conclude this section. For this morning, we will be looking at verses 37 to 45. So follow along as I read the text. 937. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met, met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But when they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. I'm going to read verses 46 to 50. This will be next week, but just to, we're, it's a whole segment. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all, all of you is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the living God. In his last work of art, before he died, Raphael, one of the, the masters, painted or almost completed the painting known as the Transfiguration. And, uh, you know, I found like every preacher uses this as an introduction for this passage, whether they're in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to join them. <laughs> uh, but this is a, a, a great way to, to consider this story because uh, Raphael, as he's uh, he was commissioned to paint this painting, and you can remember, you know, the masters, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, Leonardo, Raphael, Donatello, Michelangelo, um, and uh, Raphael, he is commissioned to write, the, uh, to, write to, uh, to paint this masterpiece, and uh, 
he doesn't finish it completely, but it's finished off after he dies. But the transfiguration is a, is a great portrait to look at. It, it basically has uh, two parts to it. On the top of the painting is the transfiguration, and it's bright, and the Lord Jesus is transfigured, and of course you have the, the characters who are present there, Elijah, Moses, Peter, James, John, and then below it, uh, the, the, the bottom part, bottom half of the painting is darker, and it's full of the disciples, and this father, and his demon-possessed son, and it's depicting their inability to cast the demon out of the son. And Raphael puts, puts these two in the same painting because every gospel writer has both of these stories right next to each other. One happens right after the other. And so you have these two stories that follow one another, and they're just, they're really very opposite from one another. The glory of the transfiguration, but then the inability of the um, disciples uh, the power on the mountain, and then you see the impotence of the disciples down below in the valley. One writer said this, Jesus comes down from the majesty on the mountain into the misery in the valley, and yet he shows his glory in both. Now, we, I like to emphasize this, uh, but each of the gospel writers have a different focus, a different emphasis. They're all telling us the same uh, you know, if they tell the same story, multiple ones, they're, they're not making new stuff up, but they have a different emphasis. Just like if, if three, four people saw a car accident, they would describe different aspects. You know, uh, one person's in a car, so they describe the car down to the, you know, the make and model and year, uh, color, whereas someone who's not, they might focus on something else. And, you know, you have a, a mother who sees it. And so she's like, oh, there was a, there was a kid in the back. And so she's thinking that way. And, and there's different focus and emphases. And that's what, the, what you have with the gospel writers. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about the transfiguration followed by this story. And yet they have different emphases and focus. Luke is a lot more summarized. And what we'll find as well is that the, the story about who is the greatest comes in these other gospels as well. Uh, but Luke also includes this story about John asking about someone, some guy casting out demons. And we're like, tell us more. What, who is this guy? And he's like, hey, we should rebuke him. And don't you notice somewhat of the irony? The disciples are unable to cast out a demon here. And then at the end of this kind of section, you have John asking about some random guy who's casting out demons apparently effectively, and they're trying to stop him. So we see um, in, in this passage, uh, Luke is shortening these stories, and I believe he wants to keep them together to teach us some lessons. The, these four stories are kind of like a plate of nachos with cheese all over them, right? You put the chips down the plate, pour the cheese on top, and then you put it in however you heat it up, uh, and, you, and it melts all together, and you know, you go to pull off one chip, you just want one, and look, half the plate comes with it, you know, and you have to break it apart. And you try to pull one of these little stories in Luke, and Luke wants them all to stick together. And you sprinkle cheese all over it, you know, and, and so they all come together. It's hard to break these apart. And you can see how he links them together at the end of verse 43. All were astonished at the majesty of God. Then in our English uh, 
tabulation of the verses. It's actually a half a verse, but the next section begins. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to the disciples, so it's intentionally a linking, a connecting. There's the cheese holding it together. Uh, and then after they, he tells them about this, they're afraid to ask him about this saying, and then an argument arose among them. And so they're talking right on the, him reminding them of his death and predicting that. They start arguing about who's the greatest. Timing, guys, timing. <laughs> what? And, and then that ends, and it provokes a question from John who says, well, hey, let me ask you a question. There was this guy, he was casting out demons, and, and he wasn't with us, so we told him to stop. And Jesus is like, what? <laughs> so they, you can see how they go together. Now, you know, as much as I'd like to do it in one, I just have way too much to say. And so I just was merciful and I, you know, cut it in half. So that's what we're going to do. Um, and uh, we got a knife out, and cut, cut a portion of this. But I just want you to know, Luke is summarizing this. Mark has, I think, one of the longest accounts of the demon-possessed boy. But we're not preaching Mark. We're preaching Luke. And so we're going to see the flow of Luke and how he's uh, preparing us here. We are in a section where Jesus is preparing his disciples. It's a focus on discipleship, what it means to follow Christ. And so here, the focus that Luke has for us is really the failure of the disciples. The failure of the disciples. Four failures. Four failures. Failure to cast out a demon failure to understand Jesus' prediction, failure in their pride, and then failure in, I'd say, their exclusivism. And, and Luke just puts them all together here for us so that we see them one after another. How to be disciples. You know, it's good to remind ourselves that our, their problems are our problems as well. And I think if we were to just put, put this in our context, think about the, the value of this passage for us, I think it is actually providential and helpful for us as we enter into a new year. You know, people are already thinking about uh, kind of a reset and uh, thinking about January and goals that they have for the new year, whether they're physical or financial, uh, spiritual, family, things like that. You're, you're planning your year out. You're thinking about January 1st, and that's good and right. I think it's just kind of a natural flow and season change. And so as we do that, we can be really focused on the physical side of things and wake up earlier, eat more healthy, you know, stay away from, you know, processed sugars, no junk food, exercise, you know, better sleep, whatever. You have all these different things uh, when that's good, get, be, be physically healthy. Uh, but here, we want to also focus upon how do we grow in maturity? How do we grow spiritually in the new year? How do we make 20, what year are we going into? 2024, uh, your most spiritually maturing year. Wouldn't that be great? That would be great if you could say, wow, this, I grew more this year. If you say that in December next year, then I think I've ever grown as a Christian. Praise God, you know. And, and so that's what we want. Now, listen to what 1 Timothy 4.8 says. 1 Timothy 4.8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I like to, you know, 
watch videos of, you know, when I'm lacking motivation to get in, in shape physically and people who just beat me up, they're like, you know, you can stay in your warm bed on your soft pillow or you can get out of bed and get at it and, you know, and go for it and, you know, and, uh, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's what I need. And then uh, I need them to like, that's, that needs to be like what my alarm clock says to me, you know, because uh, I get motivated like midday and then I'm, I'm asleep. So, uh, this is kind of a way to be motivating us spiritually to say, yeah, think about that in a spiritual way, to have, you know, yes, I need to grow spiritually. I need to mature. I need to focus on this. And so here's the training of the disciples. And here's what we're going to see. Here's, here's the flow of this passage. We're going to see this week and next week. It is uh, four marks of immature disciples that we want to look at so that we can see them, identify them in whatever way they might manifest in our lives so that we might grow out of this immaturity into greater spiritual maturity. These are very common areas that Christians struggle with. And the disciples are struggling in these four ways. And they really follow each of these four sections that we have here. And so we want to see four marks of immature disciples so that you might have a strategy for growth in the new year. We're going to look at two of them this morning, hopefully. <laughs> okay, first we want to see that immature disciples are lacking faith. Immature disciples are lacking faith. This is in verses 37 to the first half of verse 43. So after coming down from the mountain, they encounter a desperate father with a demon-possessed son and the disbelieving disciples. Let's just break this down a little bit for us in a more manageable size. Uh, let's consider first the desperate dad. The desperate dad in verses 37 to 39. Look at verse 37. On the next day, so the next day after the transfiguration, right? when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. It's from the mountain to the valley. This is like, hey, back to the real world, guys. <laughs> I mean, they're in this amazing experience. And they come down and there's this, this crowd waiting for them, back to ministry, back to the grind of it. And there's a significant issue. Look at verse 38. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out. Now imagine a massive, noisy crowd. These, we've become accustomed to these crowds with Jesus. They're clamoring. They, they're getting, wanting to get his attention. All these people have needs. They want Jesus to fix their problems. But one voice arises from among the crowd. I mean, just, this isn't like everyone's quiet and serene. It's like, excuse me, Jesus. You know, it's like everyone is trying to get his attention. But somehow this voice raises above all the others. It is the voice of a desperate man, a desperate dad. Every parent knows what this dad is, is feeling to some degree when their child is hurting, sick, in need in some way. They want to do everything that they can to help them. But this dad has really done everything that he knows to do, and yet the condition remains the same. The, the other gospel writers tell us this, is, this has plagued this child since childhood, since he was little. And Luke highlights for us that this is his only child from the lips of this father. It's my only child. Now, Luke, if you, if you remember, right, paying attention to the details, Luke likes to remind us of these things. He, he's told us of a mother with her only son or a father with his only daughter. And here, you have a dad with his only son. He keeps on highlighting this reality. This grabs Jesus' attention so that 
the man is able to then explain his situation. It's just a, mar a marvel that this guy is able to get attention in this massive crowd. But then he does, and here's what he says in verse 39. Behold, a spirit seizes him. He suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. Will hardly leave him. It almost sounds like seizure, but this is something that's not... Uh, this is something supernatural. This is the, the, the effect of the demon upon him. It has multiple effects. Luke doesn't include all of them. But it, it is a desperate condition, a desperate situation. A demon has taken possession of this young boy and it abuses him severely. Matthew and Mark add that the demon, if there was a, an open fire or an open uh, pool of water, a well or a, a lake, it would seek to throw the child into the fire or into the water to drown him or burn him. Um, you, you get a sense here of the absolute hatred of Satan for you, for your children. I mean, Satan hates you. And you see this with the utter abuse that this boy has experienced uh, at the hands of this demon. He will use whatever means necessary to destroy you and your family. And we just need to be mindful of that and aware of that and the spiritual warfare that goes on. And he has many tactics to use. Some subtle, some overt. But however he will do it, he wants to destroy your life. Yet in contrast, we're going to see again the compassion of Jesus for this father and for his son. And here next, consider the, the doubting disciples, or we might say the deficient disciples. Look at verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now already we're starting to see Luke is developing a contrast here. He, he says in verse 38, the man said to Jesus, I beg you, but then here, in verse 40, I begged your disciples. So she, the begging is happening on both ends, but there was a, an inability on the disciples' part. Now, the disciples here refer to not all 12, but the nine that got left uh, at the, in, in the valley while the three went up with Jesus onto the Mount of Transfiguration. So, so here's the nine. And they can't do it. They can't cast the demon out. Now, this is, this is really strange if we're following the flow of, of Luke's gospel. Because this is exactly what they had been doing. And we don't have to go that far back to, to catch this context. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Stay in the same chapter, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons, all demons, all demons, and to cure diseases, right? Um, it wasn't like all demons except this one category, right? You get the sense that there's this, like, this stronger demon here, and he is stronger. But he had given them authority. So, and they'd done it. They had cast demons out. They'd done many miracles before this. So why not now? Why can they not do it now? And the answer seems to be given by Luke in verse 41. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. This rebuke, faithless and twisted generation, 
is, is a strong rebuke. Faithless, it means exactly that. You're lacking faith. A twisted refers to something that's distorted, something that's perverted, twisted, deformed. The question, though, is who is Jesus, to whom is he speaking these words? Who, who is he saying this to? I think it's unlikely, all right, you have the, the, the dad, the disciples, and then the crowds at large. It seems to me unlikely that it's directly addressing to the dad because in Mark's account, Mark 9.24, Mark we read this. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, and you could probably finish it, help my unbelief. And that famous statement that Mark emphasizes. So there is some degree of faith in the father, but he's, he still knows that it's imperfect faith. It's probably not directed to the Father. So does this refer to the crowds or to the disciples? I think the answer is yes. (laughs) Uh, Now, to the crowds, in the sense that they are an unbelieving generation, uh, and they are twisted and perverted. In fact, this language of faithless and uh, perverted or twisted generation comes from Deuteronomy or this is Israel's, like, constitution. And towards the end there, in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, he's kind of recounting some of Israel's history. Moses is. And um, verse 5 of chapter 32, it says, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. In verse 20, verse 20 of that same chapter, he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Psalm 95 recounts the time when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and they didn't believe. It's actually used in Hebrews as well, but in Psalm 95, verse 10, we read, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So, this is recounting really the time just after Israel had seen God's incredible work in the Exodus, and now they're not believing God's ability as they're in the wilderness. A very short memory. <laughs> and so we see the, uh, quite a parallel situation here as Jesus has been doing so many miracles and yet there is unbelief nevertheless. Now, we might put it like this, that the disciples are acting like the unbelieving crowds here. I don't think we should say that the disciples are completely unbelieving, but that they're acting in a way like these unbelieving crowds. So the issue is of unbelief or doubting of the disciples. Luke highlights their failure as a lack of faith. Right after this, the disciples can't do it. He begged them. And then he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. Now, Matthew and Mark say more about their lack of faith. Look what Mark says in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. In Mark 9, verse... 28, this is after Jesus drives the demon out. Mark 9, 28, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind 
cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Huh, that's interesting. This kind, this kind of demon <laughs> cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Uh, so Mark, we learn that the implication is they were not praying, right? Which would express their faith in God and their dependence upon God. So it's, it's showing like, we might even just rephrase it, this one can only be driven out by dependence upon God's power, right? Expressed through your prayer for God's power. To not pray means they're not trusting in God to do this. Maybe their reliance on gifts led to their overconfidence. We might call it this, self-reliance. Look at Matthew then, Matthew 17. Matthew 17, here's what he says in verse 19 and 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Uh, Jesus is using some hyperbole there, but his point is the smallness of your faith is, or the size of your faith is, is somewhat irrelevant because it's the object of your faith. And so he, he locates the problem here, their inability upon their unbelief, their lack of faith. What does this tell you then about the connection between trust in God and prayer? See, Luke says they were faithless. Mark, Matthew says that they had little faith. Mark implies that they were not praying. Well, we said it. It means that if you fail to pray, then you are not trusting God in some way. By not praying and depending upon God's power to cast out the demon, they had in effect traded a flamethrower for a squirt gun. I mean, the disciples had been going into towns and there's just all these demons and they're just like, <laughs> and they're like the demons are just, they're just fleeing all over the place. And then now there's this one demon and they're just like, you know, like we can't do it. We can't get it. What's going on? You know, nothing. It's not working. They're just dinking around with this demon. Thomas Watson says this, prayer is a bomb which will make heaven's gates fly open. He says the reason why so many prayers suffer shipwreck is because they split against the rock of unbelief. Praying without faith is shooting without bullets. When faith takes prayer in hand, then we draw near to God. You're just dry firing <laughs> your weapon. Put some bullets in there. And they had done this before. They had, they had depended upon God before and seen the effect of the power of God through them. But somehow, some way, it had become about their gifting. Man, we just, we are really gifted. You know, we, we just figured this thing out, right? And so there's just no prayer and they cannot do it. And they can't figure out why. Now, while we are not called to trust God to cast out demons in particular, we are called to trust God to do the work that only God can do. Amen? <laughs> I mean, ministry of lasting value must be done in dependence upon God's power. You cannot depend upon past success or gifting for the present. You cannot go on autopilot and expect for the same results. 
Conscious dependence upon God is necessary for biblical ministry to occur. It cannot be, oh, well, I mean, God has really gifted us and we, we've done it this way before and we've seen just, you know, it worked last week and so we just show up and, you know, we'll just do the, do the thing and it'll, it'll happen. John 15, 5 reminds us, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's like at some point, the cord got kicked out, pulled from the wall, and the disciples are trying to use their weapon, <laughs> and it's just not working. There's no power. It's been disconnected. The breaker has been flipped. <laughs> if you hope to mature this next year, then you need to seek to abide in Christ, to have that be a constant focus. This means practically more Bible intake, this means more prayerful reflection and requests. And you should get specific about this if you're like, I want to get healthy next year. That's your goal, healthy. That's not going to happen, right? You got to give you more specific. You're like, all right, I got to do this at this time, at this place, for this many reps, whatever. You know, write it down. You know, I'm going to read, listen to my Bible for blank minutes at blank o'clock. In this place, when I open my Bible, I'm going to read blank. You know, it's like, it's, it's got to be specific so that it can be accomplishable. I'm going to pray for blank minutes at blank o'clock in this place. When I pray, I'm going to pray in these categories, right? That's just very helpful to do. I've found it. it may, if it doesn't work for you, that's fine. But that's what helps me. It's just to be very specific to grow in my abiding in Christ. You know, it's like never a mystery. If someone's really, really just struggling, bent out of shape, spiritually, I'm just not growing, I am just have no joy in the Lord, and you're like, oftentimes it's pretty common. It's like, well, I mean, look, t tell me a little about how's your time in the Word been? How's your time in prayer been? Oh, uh, it's been kind of non-existent, I guess, for four months. Okay, let's start there. Let's start there. Because, um, man, it's just gonna, it's like you're, you're running on empty. You're running on E. How do you expect to be replenished each day? And so, we understand that the work that we are endeavoring as disciples is, is not natural work. It is supernatural work. Philippians chapter 2. I remind you, this is, what we're, this is what we're up against, right? Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only my, as in my absence, but much more in my, or sorry, in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Have you ever been experiencing a day of a lack of motivation? Uh, this seems to come over me uh, <laughs> at periodic times. And this is a great reminder that He's saying the, to will and to work. The will is the desire, right? Motivation, wanting to do something. And the working is actually doing it, right? We know that that's actually like the way it works. You do what you do because you're motivated to do it in some way. And uh, so God is the one who grants motivation, desire, willing, a willingness, and he grants the ability to actually do the work. So if that's what God does, isn't that something we should pray for? Like, God, help me to be willing. Help this person to have the motivation to do this thing, to do what they should do, and help them to know how to do it. And so that's the kind of prayer we need to pray is, 
And I pray that often for myself. God, help me to be willing. Give me a willingness, a motivation for this work, for your good pleasure. Or think about other things that, that we hope to see. We hope to see someone come to repentance, right? Repent of some sin. Or some, maybe repentance unto life to become a Christian. Or maybe repentance in some area you know that they are just being dogged by. Second Timothy 2, 26 that God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. If you know that it is God that must grant repentance, then you pray, God, oh, grant them repentance. Grant them the power to overcome this. Listen to the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is a. I, this comes into my mind frequently when I'm when I get home on a Sunday afternoon, and I'm changing into my comfy clothes, <laughs> and uh, and I'm hanging up my coat, and I think, Lord, establish the work of my hands. I've just preached ministry. Lord, would you would you use that work? Would you bless that work? Would you cause it to bear fruit? I hope you do that. You know, maybe you have a conversation and you think, Lord, establish the work of my hands. Make this bear fruit. Or maybe you pray that beforehand. What I'm about to do, would you use it? This is what we need. Thomas Watson, again, he says, a godly man is on the mount of prayer every day. He begins the day with prayer. Before he opens his shop, he opens his heart to God. We burn sweet perfumes in our houses. A godly man's house is a house of perfume. He airs it with the incense of prayer. He engages in no business without seeking God. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so I say after reading Thomas Watson. <laughs> you know, you people are going to give you a candle. They're going to give you a candle gift for, for Christmas. Your light is, oh, this is a great candle. This one, ah, man, not so good. But this candle, oh, I'm going to put it in a central spot. Oh, I love that. And you get the, you know, whatever, you, the, the, the Christmas scent, you know. M- maybe... That should be the atmosphere of our home. We're just praying. We're just praying over our children, our, our homes, our, the, the season. We're praying for God's help and, and his enablement and the willing and the working and just a s- spirit of prayer going through our homes, going through our church. That's what we need. That's what we need here. And, and this is the deficiency of the disciples. So, so we're seeing their lack of faith, their lack of prayer. So what does that tell us as we think about maturity and growing this next year? We want to grow in this way. We want to grow in our dependence upon, conscious dependence upon God. And we express that most evidently in our prayers. Finally, we see in this first section, uh, the demon's defeat. The demon's defeat in verses 42 to beginning of verse 43. Look at verse 42. When he was coming, the boy, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. You just see this, you know, Jesus, he says, bring the boy to me. And this is a last ditch effort of, of the demon. Maybe they'd kill this boy if they could just finally snuff him out is the desire of the demon. But before that can happen, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, gave him back to his father. We are faithless and prayerless. Nothing happens. But notice the power of Jesus at work to take an incredibly scary situation and a desperate situation and change it. Oh, the difference that Jesus Christ makes in any situation. What an incentive, again, for us to pray and seek the Lord to work 
in the way that only he can because we see his power to overcome the most powerful of obstacles and of evil. This was a scary situation. This was a, a demon that was incredibly powerful. And yet Christ so effortlessly overcomes it. Just consider the power of Christ to convert the most unlikely person in your mind to Christ. Just think like this person, they will never come to faith in Christ. I don't know if you've ever had that thought before. Oh, they have this going on, they have that going on, they're whatever, they're too intellectual and, and you just think there's, there's just no way. I've got this person in my life. They, they, they're the least likely to come to faith in Christ. And just imagine the power of Christ. Like this demon. Oh, we just cannot cast this demon out. He's the least likely to be cast out. Gone. Done. Next. <laughs> I mean, just the, the power of God to humble a sinner. I mean, do you think people ever thought that about Saul? This guy is hunting the Christians down. They're like, this guy, he's lost. I mean, we're praying imprecatory psalms against this guy. I mean, like, strike him down, Lord, and then boom, he strikes him down off his donkey on the Damascus road, and he's a changed man. And this is the power of God to work. So this is what we pray for. We do our work, but we pray for God to make it effective. Or consider the power of Christ to give strength and grace to repent of and replace a long-standing sin in your life. And we've already seen that. You can give testimony to that, and you say, Oh, that's right. Man, that was so, so long struggling with that. And, but I've seen so many years of consistency. Praise God. I've grown so much. The power of Christ. Consider the power of Christ to keep you persevering in your faith until the end. We can multiply examples. As a church, we must never get to the point where we sit back and trust the process. <laughs> We must always be dependent upon prayer for God to do the true lasting work of ministry. Programs and strategies are fine, but they, can they cannot accomplish anything. They can only manage things. You can pile up a lot of wood in a pretty arrangement, but without a spark, there's no fire, right? So we pray, we do that work that we must do, and we pray for God to bring the fire from heaven. And we're confident that he does, we've seen it. So then look at verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Luke includes the crowd's response to this miracle. And what we see is that when God is truly at work, it causes people to be astonished at the majesty of God. Life lived in dependence upon God is a life that brings maximum glory to God. They, they glorified God. And, and we've done the same. We see God, it's so evident, God's work. We go, oh. Man, you just marvel at the power of God again. Your main goal this next year ought to be to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our ambition to please him. More than getting out of a circumstance, more than getting what you want, is to be pleasing to God in your situation. Certainly pray that if it be God's will, that he, he works in that. But most of all, to be God's kind of man, to be God's kind of woman in whatever situation you find yourself in, it's got to be your waking commitment. Ask yourself during the next three weeks as we approach the end of the year how you can practically seek to strengthen your trust in God. This is how you grow in maturity. Trust, more trust in Christ. 
Watson again, never did any look upon Christ with a believing eye, but he was made like Christ. A deformed person may look on a beautiful object and not be made beautiful, but faith looking on Christ transforms a man and turns him into his similitude or his likeness. He says again, as the, here's for you kids, you like animals? You know, you like going outside and looking at the animals and stuff? Here's what Watson says. As the chameleon is changed into the color of that which it looks upon, so faith, looking on Christ, changes the Christian into the likeness of Christ. Isn't that great? You know, stand next to the thing and it starts looking like this carpet pattern. You look at Christ and you're just changed more and more into his image. That's what we want. How can you do that for the next year? So immature disciples are lacking in trust and faith. Secondly, immature disciples are lacking understanding. Immature disciples are lacking understanding. This is the second time now that Jesus predicts his coming death and resurrection. After another victory of Jesus, he reminds them of his coming apparent defeat. And Luke links these together. Look at verse 43b, the second part. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, and he, and he predicts his death again. Phil Riken says he, he did not want them to get so caught up in marveling over his miracles that they missed the main point of his ministry. Signs are meant to point to something. Jesus does this thing and it's meant to point them back to Christ again and and he's told them what kind of Messiah he's gonna be and so he reminds them again not to be sidetracked but to keep the main thing. They're missing it. It's just like, you know, we're about to experience this Christmas morning, you know, the little, little kid. They they love the paper and the the box and they're playing with the box and you're like, I bought them this thing. You know, it's so expensive and and they wanna play in the box and it's such a big box and you're like, why don't I just buy them boxes? You know, I found a, a J. Vernon McGee quote. You know, you just, you know, you gotta, you gotta love J. Vernon McGee. He says, it's like the person who finds a large sack of money in their front yard, dumps out the money and gets excited about the sack. <laughs> you know, gotta love J. Vernon McGee. <laughs> it, they're distracted. They're distracted. Look at verse 44. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This word, of, this, this word of delivered, delivered in the hands of men, it it's, refers to someone who's handed over in God's judgment for their sin. That's how it's often used in the Old Testament. It, it'll be used later in chapter 24 of how the Son of Man is delivered over. Jesus already predicted his death once. He'll, he'll do it again. This is the second time. It's also used, this delivered over language is used of different agents, right? So Romans, the Jews, Judas, but primarily it's used of God. And in Luke part two, volume two, in Acts chapter two, here's what we read of this language. Acts chapter two, verse 22. It says, men of Israel, this is Peter preaching, first great sermon, Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So we just read about his signs. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up. He gets it now, but not in this moment. He gets it, he sees it, that God was working. This was God's plan. 
that Jesus is trying to give them perspective on. Jesus came to suffer. Now look at the beginning of verse 44 again. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. I love that. This is a great word picture. Sinking into your ears. Um, and it, I have to use this to my kids. Let these words of mine sink into your ears. I, mean, I was trying to think of like, this is a, what you call a Hebraism. It's like a Hebrew idiom. It's, you know, it, I, I want you to take this completely to heart. It might be the way to, to think of it. Uh, I thought of a, a phrase that we have. It's like um, pouring honey into someone's ear. You ever heard of that? Pouring honey in someone's ear. It means that you, uh, you were saying something that someone would like to hear even if it's not the truth. Just pouring honey in their ear. Maybe you haven't heard that. Okay, I'm, not, I'm sensing your faces here. <laughs> um, that's not what Jesus is saying, but, but Jesus' point is to fully listen and to act accordingly. Their issue is a lack of understanding. Look at verse 45. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Now, it wasn't that they didn't know the words that Jesus was saying. He wasn't speaking in a different language. They knew what he was saying, but the issue was they couldn't possibly fit this into the plans that they had for Jesus. It's like they had these puzzle pieces, and they knew, like, okay, these gotta go somewhere, but how do you fit these in? I just throw them out. You ever done that with a puzzle? You know, it's like, ah, you know, don't need that one. <laughs> no, you don't. But they don't have, like, the box. Have you tried to do a puzzle without the box cover? Uh, that's hard. Well, I don't know. What are we even doing here? We have the box. They have the box in Acts. <laughs> they don't have the box all yet. They're trying to figure, where does this go? And here's the point. That mature disciples have a better sense of how things fit together in God's plan. Mature disciples have a better sense of how God's plans mesh, fit together, connect with one another. And it helps them to then interpret life better and more according to scripture. This is an issue of maturity. They are immature right now. They don't get it. They don't understand how the cross fits in. The suffering of Messiah fits in. But later they will. You know, as a, as a biblical counselor, which all of you are to some degree, so whether you're good or bad at it, you, you seek to help people do this. You seek to investigate what their situation is as they perceive it and, and, and get as much data as you can to, to, to assess what's going on. But then you seek to help, once you got a sense of the, all the information, as much as you are able, you seek to interpret their circumstances through the grid of scripture, through the lens of scripture, interpreting for them how to think through what's going on according to scripture, and then you give them instruction based upon what the scriptures say that's relevant to that circumstance and that situation, and you even give them motivation to act accordingly. And so do you want to mature and grow in Christ this new year? Well, you need to focus on passing your life and your circumstances through the grid, through the through the sieve, through the lens of Scripture. Seek to interpret your personal life according to God's Word. Put the spectacles of the sufficient Scriptures on so that you might see clearly. Sometimes this is hard for us to do in, in the midst of our situation, and so sometimes we help get others to help us to do that as well. But, but this is what all of us are constantly trying to do, to step back and to observe through the Scriptures what is right, what is true, 
what is beautiful, what is honorable, what is good, and then to conform our thinking to that, to renew our minds so that we think rightly and we're not just pulled along to think what we would naturally think about in our flesh. But notice one other thing here. It says they did not understand because it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. A similar language uh, to this is used in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, where the guys are walking along with Jesus, and it says they were prevented from recognizing him, but then later it says their eyes were open and they, they realized it was, it was Jesus. And so this is the reality of divine sovereignty. For whatever reason, at this moment, they are, are not, it's concealed from them. They're not able to, to fully grasp this. We're not given all those reasons right now, but we do know that they do fully understand it later. They come to grasp it back in Acts. In Acts chapter 3, verse 17, here's a sampling of that, verse 18. Peter says in his next sermon, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then he starts calling people to repent. He talks about other prophets. And it's almost as though he gets the box and he goes, oh yeah, that's over here, that's over here, that's over here. And, and he starts putting them all together. And now he can explain it and go, yep, that's from Samuel, that's from Moses, that's from Isaiah, that's from Ezekiel. And it's like, this is what they all said. And oh, it's so clear now. It's always there, but somehow I missed it. And it's the immaturity of not knowing how the pieces fit together that, that comes into maturity as the disciples uh, are now preaching in the book of Acts. We need understanding from the spirit into the word. We're all at different stages in this. We call this the doctrine of illumination. This is what we pray for often before the sermon, that God would give us eyes to see. We'd give illumination. We understand the scriptures better. I think a really helpful verse that has a great balance for us here is in 2 Timothy 2, verse 7. 2 Timothy 2, verse 7. It's so simple. It's uh, Tim, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says this, 2 Timothy 2, 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Notice the command for Timothy to think. He's commanded to think about the scriptures. That's what Paul's giving him, revelation. Christians are commanded then to be thinkers, we must be thinkers about the scripture, thinking about the relevance to our situation, to other situations. But notice also that the Lord is the one who must give understanding in everything. And so both of these are true, right? It's not that you just say like, Lord, make me understand all the Bible and have it memorized by tomorrow. Amen. You know, I'm not going to read this thing. I just want you to do that for me. You know, it's like, wouldn't that be great? It's like the student who gets to the test and, Lord, help me do great on this test. I haven't studied it all. But, you know, and uh, I remember when I was more immature, I, I used to be frustrated, uh, you know, in college. Like, when, Lord, help us to remember the things we've studied. I'm like, Lord, I want you to help, help me remember the things I didn't study because uh, I was lazy. And it's like, but, but, uh, you have to think. You have to do that work. But it's God who grants you understanding into the scriptures. So both are true. We call this dependent responsibility, right? That's not my term. I think Jerry Bridges helpfully illustrated that by saying, when you're in an airplane, which, which wing do you prefer to go without? The left wing or the right wing? <laughs> and it's a silly question because it's, well, neither. You can't fly it. You know, you're, not gonna, you're, gonna, you're going down, right? It doesn't work that way. And so, do you want to be dependent or do you want to be responsible, right? And it's both, right? It's dependent responsibility. It's God must do it, but we must work. It's 
Philippians 2, or, uh, yeah, Philippians 2. Uh, God must will and work in us, but we have to work out what he works in. You must depend upon God, but you must be responsible to think and interpret your circumstances according to the knowledge of the scriptures. Notice also here that it says that they were afraid to ask about this saying, the end of verse 45. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. It's just easy application. Don't be afraid to ask what you don't know. That's how you grow. That's how you mature and grow. But of course, prideful people do not want to reveal their ignorance, and therefore, they don't mature and grow. That's what happens, right? And so you, you, you have to learn. You have to be humble to, to, to grow and reveal your ignorance so that you can grow. Ryle made two good applications, J.C. Ryle, uh, about the ignorance of the disciples. I thought they were just very pastoral, very good. He said, first, one must be a, uh, that one might be a true child of God while being ignorant of some things. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad that that's true. I'm ignorant of a lot of things. And yet, you can be a true child of God. You don't have to have it all downloaded day one, right? You, you just start wherever you are, and you just seek to grow a little bit more. Praise God. Second, he says, you should be patient with those who are newer believers. He says, if Jesus could endure so much weakness in his disciples, we may surely do likewise. Amen. Just come alongside. Great, brother. I'm glad that you're hungering for the Lord. You, just, you don't need to tell someone everything they have wrong, you know, when they say something. You don't have to correct them on everything, right? Just know the Lord is at work. He's doing the process. And we just help come along. Remember that verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And I might say this, I'll add this as a final application, keep the cross central. Keep the, that's what Jesus is trying to get them to do, keep the cross central. This is what mature Christians come to realize, the centrality of the cross for everything, for their motivation, for the model for their, for their work, when mature believers are humble and not focused on self, it's because they are keeping Christ and the cross central. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's no wonder that the next thing that's about to happen is the disciples start arguing about who's the greatest among them. And it's, they don't understand the cross they don't understand what Jesus is saying about the cross. And so therefore, they're just totally focused on themselves. They're fighting. We'll see that. Keeping the cross central keeps you humble. Keeps you humble. Keeps you focused on Christ. You know, artwork appreciation is an acquired skill. There's classes for this in college. Sometimes you need to know where to look in the painting to know what was going on in the painter's mind. In Raphael's painting, there were two scenes that are juxtaposed. And Luke is trying to focus the attention of future disciples on the centrality of the cross, to keep the cross in your vision if you want to be a mature disciple. The cross is the hub on the wheel, and the wheel itself, as the spokes go out. The cross is where the needle of our compass continues to come back, true north, after we're shaken. It comes back to the cross. And so if we want to mature in 2024, we want to keep the cross central. We want to grow in our trust. We want to grow in our understanding of life according to the grid of scripture. And part of that is keeping the cross central. Here are the two ways we want to focus on maturing in the new year. 
While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for these challenging words from the examples of the disciples. Uh, We see ourselves all too familiar in these stories and these men. And yet, Lord, we're so thankful of where you've brought us from where we were and where you will bring us in the future. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to long to grow. And Lord, help us to see more and more the sufficiency of the scriptures for all of life, for our circumstances. And as we do, it would excite us to help others to see the same. Lord, may Christ be central in our thoughts, especially in this season. Increase our trust in him. We find him to be a more of a reliable savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.